Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glestron and in this episode we're going to be exploring Moore's Law. Named after the late Gordon Moore, who observed that the number of transistors in a dense integrated circuit doubled about every two years. Of late, there have been suggestions that the law might be dead. We'll explore that and look into why this matters and what, if anything, might replace it. Later in the podcast, we'll hear from two researchers looking into the future of computing. Two of the biggest questions that they're looking into are whether the increase of computing power can keep up with the ever-increasing demands of generative artificial intelligence. And can that happen in a way that doesn't threaten the planet due to the vast energy demands? But first, here's Lewis Barson. I'm a Director of Science, Innovation and Skills at the Institute of Physics. Semiconductors are important because they're the basic uh, building blocks of computer chips. Um, and the more transistors you have on a chip, uh, the more numbers you can crunch, uh, the smaller and more powerful your digital devices become. Uh, and uh, that's important because that's what really powers the, the digital revolution. It's the miniaturization uh, and the increasing uh, power and efficiency of digital devices that is transforming industries uh, in everything from aerospace and automotive to uh, healthcare uh, and defense. And I guess it's Moore's law um, which tells the story of this doubling uh, of, of that, that capacity that really charts the development of the digital transformation that we're seeing. Can you tell me a bit more about Moore's Law and, crucially, is it actually dead? I guess this really comes from a, an article he published in 1965 in the American Journal uh, Electronics. Uh, and this is back when he was director of the R&D lab at, at Fairchild Semiconductors, so before Intel and all that. Um, and the, the article and the prediction is about the number of components on a chip so it's a pretty understated article, I would say. It sort of highlights that the, the number of the components on a chip had doubled every year for the last three years. And he was said, you know, he was, he was open and said that, you know, there's a bit of uncertainty over the future growth rates, but he expected that doubling would continue every year, at least for 10 more years. Um, so he then updated his prediction in 1975, actually, to say this doubling would take place every two years rather than every year. So this was, this was the observation of a trend. It was charting it into the midterm and uh, you know, updating the prediction to make it a bit more realistic, but not not a prophecy by uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and I guess it was probably actually uh, the eminent Caltech professor Carver Mead, who was a close colleague of Gordon Moore. Uh, he also had a, a good knack for predicting the future. Um, so, for instance, you know, very early on, when when many thought miniaturization would actually make chip performance worse, he did some clever physics and material science to show that in fact miniaturizing chips would allow them to get faster and more efficient and that turned out to be the case so i think it's actually carver mead who's credited as the um uh, the one who actually referred to moore's prediction as moore's law uh, and that raised raised its profile and highlighted its significance um and you know partly through that popularization we start to see actually moore's law becoming a rallying call for the industry uh, a bit of a target for uh, chip companies to aspire to uh, as well as just an observation of what's happening so it it developed a little bit of a Felt self-fulfilling nature um, in that the companies themselves are actually trying to uh, to, to, to reach it. Um, but you asked about whether whether it's dead. Um, it's it's been amazing how long it's lasted. Right, so right at the beginning, I think people were talking about you know ten years. Uh, perhaps it could last for as long as ten years. We've seen that that doubling trend over every two years has ca- actually carried on um, from the early nineteen seventies uh, to to the the twenty twenties. So we've seen, um, you know, the numbers of transistors on a ship go from somewhere around 5,000 in the, in the 1970s to more like 50 billion in the 2020s through that that success of doubling every every two years. It's really mind blowing that improvement could, could stay at that exponential level for 50 years. Um, uh, so I think we we are starting to see it level off, um, but it's been amazing uh, what it's achieved uh, over the last 50 years, and actually that leveling off potentially from a UK perspective, is really interesting um, because that means perhaps there are new technologies that need to be looked at that could um, could help to continue the curve, help continue that transformation. And perhaps that's a chance for the UK to um, uh, to really articulate the, the role it wants to play in this industry moving forward. The UK government have, uh, to some extent at least, said what they would like to do. You know, it's clear how transformational this, this industry is. Um, uh, you know, access to chips is now a matter of critical economic importance. 
Uh, it's not just something that's important for consumer electronics. Every industry from medical devices to defense and security to aerospace and automotive have critical reliance on access to cutting edge chips. And I think we saw during the pandemic that, uh, you know, a worldwide chip shortage actually caused the automotive supply chain issues that led to more than a 25% slump in auto production and some big backlogs that are only just getting unwound. Uh, and it's worth noting that chips themselves are now one of the world's biggest markets, roughly half a trillion dollar industry. Um, and uh, semiconductors or chips are now the world's fourth most traded product after crude oil, refined oil and cars, it's chips. So, uh, you know, it's not surprising that, that sometimes people refer to them as like the, the new oil. They are very nearly as traded and very nearly as vital uh, for all the world's major industries. So it's not really surprising that governments are taking notice. Um, you know, as, as you and others will know, the US, China and Europe are slugging it out in a super high stakes battle for supremacy where um, you know, building a new fabrication facility is often in the, the billions of dollars. I think TSMC's latest plant in Arizona triples their overall investment in the state to $40 billion. So it's, it's really eye-watering stakes. Um, and I guess, well, the US government, for instance, recently committed to more than $50 billion to support industry and innovation in its Chips Act um, last year. So uh, you mentioned the UK sort of setting out its stall. Um, the, the context is that, right? The UK is a, a mid-sized economy. It can't invest uh, at the levels of the US, China, Europe, but it has a lot of strengths in chip design and packaging and some next generation technologies like uh, compound semiconductors, 2D materials, but it, it can't just go toe to toe with these larger economies. So it had uh, a real challenge. Um, and uh, I guess uh, it's worth just talking about the um, the context of ARM as well. I think that was, that was really important in the, the genesis of the strategy. So um, I guess the UK's flagship design, chip design company, ARM, which came out of the, um, the 90s investment in computing around Cambridge. Uh, some of you might remember the Acorn Archimedes. I had a bit of a soft, soft spot there when I was a, a child. So Acorn essentially developed into ARM, uh, became one of the world's leading chip design specialists with their chips in 95% of the world's smartphones, for instance. And in, uh, in 2014, they were purchased by uh, the Japanese tech and venture capital company, uh, SoftBank. Just a quick aside from me, because that mention of Acorn Computers took me on a trip down memory lane, and I discovered that the computer that I was a particularly proud owner of in 1983, the Acorn Electron, was the biggest selling computer at the time in the UK. But it only sold between 200 and 250,000. And it just made me wonder, is there anybody listening to this podcast who also had an Acorn Electron? If so, perhaps you could tweet us, at Physics World. But anyway, back to Lewis Barson. And this really illustrates the dilemma that we have here in the UK. So ARM sold for, I think, $32 billion, which is, you know, a lot of money and is clearly, uh, clearly a success by many measures. But, you know, some, some felt and still feel that it may not have valued its national significance appropriately and may have actually weakened the, the domestic ecosystem. Um, so this, this was a big debate. Uh, and after this, the government ran a big review of its strategy around critical technologies. Um, which led to uh, a new, more strategic approach to, to, to national critical technologies and to the commitment to a semiconductor strategy. Um, so this felt like a big opportunity for the UK to start to think uh, you know, a bit more strategically about the role it wants to play and to carve out a bit of a niche. Um, so that's why the IOP recently ran uh, an impact project in partnership with uh, the Royal Academy of Engineering, to, to support the UK government in thinking about the position it wanted to take uh, towards this you know, critical technology. Uh, and we got together an expert roundtable. He produced, I think, some really you know, insightful recommendations that helped inform the evidence base. Um, and uh, you know, when the strategy came out earlier this year, uh, we gave it a cautious welcome. And I think that was firstly because you know, it was really important to have the strategy itself uh, for the industry to hear the strategic significance that you know, the government places on this technology for the world to see the value we place in the industry and, and the plans that we have. Second, because it felt, you know, really well-structured. It was uh, it was good to have the focus on growth in the domestic industry, as well as, you know, a recognition of the importance of uh, security of supply of chips for the industrial sectors that are big users from healthcare to auto. Uh, and, you know, looking at the, uh, the national security dimensions. Uh, so not just from the perspective of security of, for instance, wireless infrastructure, you know, 5G infrastructure that's been such a big thing, but also, you know, the vital role of, of chips in, in defense and security. Um, so it seemed, it seemed well-structured and it seemed to recognize this narrative of this being a chance for us to, uh, to position, to, to dive in. 
Uh, and third, because uh, it seemed to take on board the IOP roundtable recommendations uh, really, really well, uh, including uh, a recommendation around uh, having a national infrastructure initiative and, uh, you know, the joined up skills focus. So um, so that was all good. Uh, should also say, I guess it was, you know, it was a relatively modest strategy. I guess the, the scale of the strategy was was one billion over 10 years. Um, and we need to recognise in the, in the in the context of worldwide semiconductor investment, that's not huge. But it felt like a really important starting point and statement of intent. So, um, you know, really, I think this gives gives the UK the chance to um, be using the ambition and the momentum in the strategy to prepare to to build on some of our strengths and and develop the semiconductor technologies of tomorrow. So that when the uh, inflection point for uh, you know Moore's law slowing for silicon versus other technologies comes, we're ready to join the race for the head start, and that we've got the the stomach to invest at the scales that will be needed when the time comes. This one billion pounds over ten years is that the sort of time scale where we'll need to be investing more before those ten years are out. I think I think almost certainly is the uh, is the answer, the honest answer. I mean, this is a starting point, and you know, over over the next decade, uh, we're going to see quite a lot of um, uh, of development. I think in the semiconductor industry. So um, I think we're almost certainly going to be hearing more about what the, the government thinks about semiconductors and. For really this this strategic direction to just be a starting point, um, and it's really good news. I think they've established a UK uh, industrial advisory council to help guide the development and the evolution of the strategy. Uh, I know um, the people I've spoken to in the team are very open to uh, the idea that actually, you know, we may need to think again and actually inject more ambition into the strategy at, at the moment when it becomes clear, you know, what the, the next step should be for the UK. Should the physics community be interested in this, and should? Everybody else be interested in this? Uh, yes, and yes, I think is <laughs> the answer. What Moore's Rule really shows is how central cutting edge physics and material science is to uh, the digital revolution. So it shows that um, through reducing, through clever physics and material science, through miniaturizing chips, through increasing the number of transistors, increasing the number of you know, ones and zeros you can represent on a, on a chip. Um, you uh, increase computing power and you reduce the cost of computing technology. Um, so that really shows that, you know, it's actually physics and, uh, and material science right at the heart of the digital revolution. Um, uh, Moore's law really charts the contribution, I would say, of, of physics and material science to um, to, to the digital technology, technological revolution. And um, I think, you know, beyond the physics community, obviously, uh, everyone uh, should be interested because uh, this is this is transforming um, the, the way in which we, we live and work. Everyone now has a smartphone in their pocket uh, in the 1965 when, when Gordon Moore coined the term. Uh, nobody uh, had a smartphone in the pocket. That was not even in the realms of something that could be thought about um, uh, because transistors, you know, you'd, you'd hold them in your hand and they'd be... Uh, uh, you know, a valve or a, in a, uh, uh, you know, in a light bulb shaped uh, uh, apparatus. So um, I think, you know, if, if, if you care about the digital revolution, if you care about the direction of transformation in sectors, you should, you should care about uh, uh, Moore's law and semiconductors. Um, and that's true from a, uh, those in the physics community who care about these things, but also, you know, those in, in wider uh, society who care about these things. Whether Moore's law is dead on life support or otherwise, the problem is, whilst making the transistors smaller means that the computers are faster, there is a limit to how small and how many you can fit on a chip. In, in simple terms, uh, you know, a transistor is a switch that can be turned on or off, so it can represent you know, the one or zero of, of binary code, which is the, the basic language that computers speak. So uh, the more transistors you have, the more ones and zeros you can represent, uh, and the more complex calculations you can do more quickly. Um, so, so shrinking those transistors means you can get more on a chip and each chip becomes able to do, to do more. Uh, but you're absolutely right. We're starting to get, uh, the, you know, the, the individual elements on a, on a chip are starting to get so small. Um, you know, we get, we're sub 10 nanometer now. I think the, the latest process is around three nanometers, um, which is, you know, getting to the, uh, the scale of individual atoms. Um, you start to see quantum effects coming into play that you don't, things that we don't see happening in everyday life happen in chips because they're so small. Um, and uh, we are definitely beginning to, to uh, reach uh, the limits because I suppose if this continues on for another uh, 50 years, we're going to be, you know, individual elements would have to be smaller than uh, individual atoms, which uh, is clearly not feasible. Um, 
but there are interesting technologies that are starting to extend the boundaries of what that could mean. So, um, for instance, 3D chips that use more complex chip architectures to mean that um, you can squeeze uh, more more life out of Moore's law uh, are starting to to become more popular. Um, and I mentioned a couple of uh, potential sort of um, UK strength opportunities previously, but uh, compound semiconductors are a great example of um, an, a new material science physics technology that um, is using multiple elements, not um, uh, not just the traditional silicon, to create substrates for for chips that could be more efficient and effective. Two um, D materials such as graphene and others um, have some potential if if we can manufacture them in in ways that give them a semiconductor characteristics. Um, and there's also interesting experiments around using um, photonics or using light to uh, to do computing in ways that could be more efficient and effective. So for me, it's exciting that Moore's law is starting to slow because we're we're reaching the limits of that that way of looking at semiconductors and starting to it's starting to mean we need to look at other ways of doing it, which uh, to me is very exciting, and to, I know to others in the physics and, and engineering community is very exciting as well. One such person is Thomas Ferreira de Lima. I'm a researcher at NEC Labs America, uh, based in Princeton, New Jersey, and my research field is on the topic of optical computing or sort of next generation computer hardware with using optics. Optical computers, they rely on the physics of um, light waves in order to perform some computations. So traditional electronic computers are based on um, transistor gates. Information is encoded into a voltage that if it's above a certain threshold, then there's a one, if it's below, it's a zero. So very binary, very efficient way of uh, connecting the device physics to binary logic uh, on electronics. In uh, optics, what you try to do is do the same thing, uh, but instead of storing information in voltage, you store in some property of light, like its amplitude or its color or its polarization. And so the challenge here is that there is no equivalent to a transistor in optics, right? So what, I, what I've researched when I did my PhD at Princeton University was how do we think about a computer where we cannot have an optical transistor, right? And in order to take full advantage of um, light properties for computing, what we needed to do is to use linear computations with optics and nonlinear computations with some elect- optoelectronic device. And the architecture that most resembled what these advantages were neural networks, coincidentally, right? Which were on vogue uh, since 2009 um, with, with machine learning. So optical computing, you hear from different researchers, they come in multiple flavors. A lot of people focus on the linear algebra part of it by optimizing uh, sort of matrix vector multiplication and reducing the energy consumption of that. So creating like uh, accelerator chips um, that focus on, on this aspect of computation. Some others would look into image processing for convolution operators and that there you wanna do uh, you want to process as many images as possible, as fast as possible, things like that. But in all the situations, what I see is they, they're going to act as um, accelerator processors. They need to work in conjunction with um, um, state-of-the-art electronics processors. So you shouldn't think of optical computing as an evolution or an iteration of the the history of computers. You should think of a new technology that will enable... Um, uh, you know, accelerator functions in, uh, in for multiple tasks that society will need in the future. That's that's my opinion, at least. But we'll still need other types of computers. Well, well, there is certainly a need, but to me, it's unclear what's going to be um, if if ever there is going to be uh, a new paradigm that will replace the current uh, sort of uh, digital electronic. Uh, computers. So people talk about uh, quantum computing, for example, um, or uh, using more advanced um, physics like spintronics and things like that. So, um, But 
so far as I know, as I've seen, I don't think none of those technologies will replace fully the kinds of uh, algorithms that current computers can run. Okay. But does that mean that, I mean, should we care, really, if Moore's Law ends? Yes. Yes. Uh, it, it has a lot of consequences, in my opinion. Um, the uh, The reason why we should care is because now we are entering a new period of um, machine intelligence. And so the amount of computation demand required by society is now going to scale uh, beyond the individual human demands, right? So now we have machine-to-machine sort of communication processes. We'll have automated systems. We'll have self-driving cars and things like that. So machines, we can build more, many more machines than the human population. So there's no upper upper limit on that. So as, as the demand for computation and for this uh, AI models, for example, with the uh, chat GPT, as they increase, we're going to need more computing power. And with the end of Moore's law, what you know, what we were used to in the past was okay. We just wait two years and we gain an um, an immediate, you know, two x efficiency after two years, right? Because of Moore's law. Now that's not true anymore. If you need more computing, you're gonna have to spend um, more money on chips, pay pay more for transistors, and you gotta it's gonna consume more uh, electricity, right? So we're entering this new regime from abundance to to scarcity, right? It's going to become like a, a commodity, like oil, the chips, as you, as you know, as you probably heard on uh, on the news. Yeah. So so I think in that context, that's why more more slow ending is is important. You're pretty certain from what you're saying that Moore's law is dead. If it's not dead, it certainly has slowed down. And so that's uh, very visible from the, um, the, the uh, sort of the number of transistors on every chip as they evolve as has not been um, following on the same trajectory as it has, uh, as it had been since the 1970s. So I think so. But more importantly than Moore's law, there is another, um, scaling law so to speak that's called that i pay more attention to which is called the dennard's law so the dennard's law it's more like a scaling law is the sense that as the dimensions of a device go down so does power consumption so smaller devices within the dielectrics and shorter channels are um, they improve the um, the frequency the cost and the power consumption of the device. So you said it sort of had this uh, virtual cycle of more slow in parallel going on where the chips, as you, you packed more transistors on chip by making them smaller, they also became more efficient, you see? And that stopped around 2005. And that's when you saw your, you know, your computer CPUs, if you paid attention, the frequency they operated at, um, and they had been growing like doubling every a couple of years 400 megahertz 800 megahertz until they stopped at about three to four gigahertz right and then since then instead of improving the frequency uh chip manufacturers started adding more cores so to speak so how many cores does your intel cpu has right one core two cores four eight right but at the same clock frequency so instead of um Reducing the size and using a single core, they are increasing the size of the chip using more transistors that way. But the more cores you have, more power consumption, right? And that that's the direct effect of the end of the Dennard's Dennard scaling law, right? So that's something that is also interesting to think about beyond the more more slow. How do you feel about the future? Because if you look at the news um, reports, there's great concern about AI, for example, that maybe there's great concern about um, less, with less noise around it, this concern about um, transistors becoming a commodity in the same way as oil. What's your feeling on it? I'm a hardware researcher. I usually concern myself with thinking about 
the problems related to um, uh, power consumption, how can we actually support this demand, how can we uh, improve the efficiency of computing so that it's, uh, um, it doesn't contribute even more to, to, the, uh, to climate change. So, but yes, it, it concerns me on a you know citizen level uh, the uh, development of the, the, this, the high speed development of AI models and how they are actually becoming more integrated in society. I'm not a I'm an I'm an optimist though on that, on that front. I do think that on a personal opinion that the um, the uh, the AI models that we have seen. In recent years, in particular, the uh, the GPT three and four, they are getting close to um, to they're getting close to hitting the limitations of hardware. Right, they're already too expensive to train on the millions of dollars. So the question is, if they want to increase this, that that model by tenfold, are they prepared to spend ten times more money? Right. So I think that's going to be a real bottleneck in the in the short term. And so hardware engineers like me are trying to catch up to that trend. Right. Um, Not not just me, but of course, the whole industry. And um, so if we don't catch up and if that trend continues to increase, then um, right now people don't pay attention to this, but data centers already consume 3% of the global electricity. So if you multiply that by 10, that becomes 30%, right? And uh, 3% is tolerable, 30% isn't, okay? So between now and then, then we have to really solve this problem one way or another. That's mainly what I concern myself with so far. When is this time when we're going to have to solve this problem? it, it depends. It depends on the uh, appetite for, you know, machine learning models to keep increasing, right? So in recent past, because it was unbounded, the uh, training models were doubling uh, in size in, in a time frame of less than a year, I think. Every year, a model doubled. But so if you continue that, a factor of 10 is just three years away or four years away, right? Um but it's not going to continue like that, at least not in the short term. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking in a decade. Uh, that's our, that's what I have in my mind. In a decade, we should have um, more efficient accelerators for um, this kind of computing that machines require. Um, and also working in parallel with that, we have a lot of innovations from the uh, software. Uh, from the software side with uh, better mathematics, better ways of representing information uh, digitally, better neural network models. So let's not forget that the uh, transformer model is only a few years old. And, you know, what's there could be a new model that will power the next generation uh, sort of AI model in which it's going to be way more efficient, for example. I could see that coming as well. What yeah. would you like to see happen in an ideal world? I think computers, um, I, I kind of partake Steve Jobs' vision for this. It's supposed to be a tool to empower humans and human communication, human productivity. And so I do like the sort of the um, the direction that it has taken so far. These AI models are helping um, a lot of people, particularly knowledge workers, right? So I would like that to move towards um, the um, cyber-physical space. So instead of having your AI help you draft a better text or parse your code or things like that, it would be nice if you could have AI help you with your uh, physical tasks. Maybe you're fixing your car and it can diagnose it for you and it can help you figure out which, you know, which knobs to, to turn, which screws to tighten, things like that, right? 
Um, so more, more cyber physical systems. I think that's, uh, that's what I would like, uh, to see another situation is, uh, think about, um, human machine interaction, right. Being more, having a higher bandwidth, uh, of communication between yourself and the machine rather than right now, we just, we can speak to it. We can type. Can we think of something better than that? So that's something that uh, that company uh, Elon Musk's uh, Neuralink is working towards the big machine interface. But if you ignore all that, then um, you could have, for example, in the context of remote surgery, you could have a specialist in a particular kind of surgery and a very advanced robots with um, with a very um, uh, precise movements and precise instruments, for example. And you could have these two things sitting hundreds of kilometers apart. So you'll be interesting if that uh, could happen in my lifetime, right? So an ability for a surgeon to perform remote surgery far away, right? That would enable a lot, um, a lot of progress in, in medicine, in my opinion. And I know for a fact that in order for that to happen, you're going to need uh, better computers and faster computers r- running on both sides. Like just higher bandwidth communication is not enough because of a latency constraint. You need to, um, so just so, just to, to give you a sense, let's say it takes uh, 20 milliseconds for any information to go from one side of the globe to another, but humans require much less than five milliseconds feedback time in order for you to um, really enhance your fine motor skills. So that's an impossible thing, right? Unless you had a lot of enough computing power to predict the future, not far ahead, but a few milliseconds ahead on both sides, in which case you could enable this sort of technology. So yes, embedded processors, embedded systems, cyber cyber physical systems, so to speak, I think uh, what excites me in the future. Sounds fascinating, yeah. Another point of uh, concern, right, is coming back to the commoditization of uh, computer processors. Um, because it's, a, it's, it's becoming a resourceful commodity, then it, this issue is actually becoming geopolitical, right? Um, you can see the U- U.S. In, uh, passing the Chips Act recently, which is supposed to bring a lot of a lot more manufacturing back to to the United States, for example, semiconductor manufacturing that is. And uh, if you look at the supply chains of how these chips are made, they are very, uh, let's say, delicate. Right? It needs a lot of cooperation of, of, from multiple companies in multiple different countries. And there is a lot of uh, different equipment that are, uh, you know, provided by companies with a monopoly. And so, so it's now that uh, it's becoming a more scarce resource. I, I worry a little bit about what are the geopolitical consequences of that. Are we going to see big, uh, big crisis as it happened during COVID with uh, the microchip uh, shortage? in uh in car manufacturing for example so you had all the other pieces of your car ready to go but then because of a few chips here and there which are unique and has to come from a particular vendor you had to delay your whole production for example right so is there more of that in the horizon that's something that i i think about and also the the other thing is investments i don't see adequate and sufficient investments yet uh on non-standard or uh, semiconductor industry for computing, right? I see, of course, there's a lot of investments for the semiconductor uh, manufacturing for um, electronics, but for example, in photonics, it's a, it's a lot less, of course. But I do believe that it's a technology that is going to uh, be part of much of this future that I mentioned. Um, this uh, advanced processors, this type of physical systems, we need we need optical elements in it. That's something that will happen inevitably. So I would like to see a little bit more investment on that on that front. 
Here's Anson Ho, a physics graduate who now works at the interface of AI and other disciplines. Among other deep questions, he's interested in the efficiency of computer processing and its implications for climate change mitigation. I am an AI forecasting researcher at EPOP. Uh, essentially, that means that I try to use tools from a bunch of different fields like um, economics and physics and deep learning and try to help us to understand what's going on in, um, with future AI developments, how that's going to impact the world. And we use this information to try to communicate to, say, policymakers and other AI researchers who want to ensure that the impacts of AI are going to be beneficial. What's it looking like, though, to you? Cause... I would say I'm somewhere on the side where I'm quite concerned about like a lot of the possible um, misuse aspects of AI. Um, this is originally one of the ways in which I got into it in the first place. Um, so I'm actually quite sympathetic to like views that uh, we really need to focus on uh, possible tail risks um, of AI. Um, although I don't think I go all the way to thinking that, oh, this is um, a situation where we're absolutely doomed and there's nothing we can do about it. We're going to be all dead by the end of the decade. Um, so I'd say um, the most important thing for us right now is to try to gain more clarity about these questions. And that's really what I'm hoping to do. Fair enough. Well, how does Moore's law fit into AI or is it the other way around? I think the framing here is to take one of um, thinking about AI developments in terms of a key input. So we could first ask, what are the main things that drive AI progress? And there are three main ingredients. People often talk about this thing called the AI triad, um, which are as just a thing, like a framework with three main components. Compute, which is the total amount of computation. It could be um, hardware. Uh, it could be like the amount of spending on hardware. And there's also um, data. People often talk about big, big data, for example. There's like so much um, text on the internet so we can use to feed into deep neural networks. And uh, the third aspect is algorithms. Like what kinds of neural networks are we using? Um, I think right now, it seems to be the case that the most important thing is probably compute, arguably. Uh, algorithms are also quite important, but maybe I'll get to that later. But the most important thing uh, seems to be compute. If you look at the trends historically, um, we find that between, um, say, the start of um, machine learning or a start of um, artificial intelligence around 1956 with like the Dartmouth conference, um, over until the start of deep learning around 2010, and like 2012 was like the development of Alex Snaps, which is really, really, really a famous paper. Um, the trend and the amount of computation used to train these like top AI systems has followed something similar to like a rate of progress as Moore's law, which is around a doubling every two years. And this seems to suggest to us that, okay, historically, we've seen a lot of progress um, until 2012, that is, in deep learning, or in, sorry, not deep learning, in machine learning, due to improvements in processors, improvements in hardware, um, just these kinds of things, like slowly pushing forward. I say slowly, but two, like doubling every two years is still pretty fast. Um, but the reason why I say slowly is that after deep learning, things really took off. After the, uh, 2012, um, people realized that one of the ways in which you can get much, much, much better performance is really to just scale things up by a lot. We use a lot more GPUs. We um, invest a lot more. <laughs> we also um, really just uh, have seen like a massive growth in the computation since then. So for example, between 2012 and uh, around 2018, we've seen um, a doubling time of more like six months in the training compute. And since then, we've seen a little bit of a slowing around um, I'd say around like 2017 or so uh, to something more like 11 months. But these trends just indicate to us that uh, there was something happening initially in the first era where we're going from um, 1956 to 2012, mostly happening through like hardware improvements. Afterwards, the big change was due to a massive increase in investment. And uh, we're seeing much more computation being used to train systems. And after that, we're kind of hit, we're going to start to see some like bottlenecks where it's just hard to continue to increase investments. But it's not entirely clear like um, how long trends are going to last and like what kinds of things are going to come into place. And hopefully, we can try and get a better understanding of that by looking into like the bottlenecks of different um, that could be in place. It could be economic bottlenecks. It could be physical bottlenecks in hardware. So those physical bottlenecks are sort of, I mean, they're insurpassable, aren't they? If you can't fit more things on a chip, then you can't fit more things on a chip. I guess there are a number of ways around this. It is true that it's like, um, well, with Moore's law, um, I guess we could have problems with, say, when transistors become too small, uh, they don't operate as well because of things like quantum tunneling. Um, also, um, yeah, there's just like problems with um, noise, like thermal noise that makes them very unreliable. I would say like the possible ways around them are to 
uh, one, continue with the current paradigm and come up with better solutions that can fit into the current paradigm. Um, so you could use different types of transistors. Um, for most of, um, I'd say, the developments from 1980 or so until 2010, the transistors that were being used were MOSFETs. So these are metal oxide semiconductor field effect transistors. Uh, more recently, we've seen like a new type of transistors that are becoming more and more popular called FinFETs. And these help to improve upon like these um, previous um, uh, bottlenecks in uh, microprocessors that occur due to um, static power dissipation, which can occur. So this is power dissipation that is present even when we're not doing switching operations, like doing logic operations. Um, so this is one of the kinds of things we can do. We can try to improve the existing paradigm. But even still, um, there's so far you can push this, maybe you're saying. The other, other way around this is to try and come up with alternative computing paradigms. So right now, most of the stuff we're doing is um, using um, irreversible operations. And we're using things that are based on um, you know, semiconductors like silicon. And we're not really thinking so much about things like um, uh, obstacle computing, which could also be based on like silicon, but we're using like a different um, type of computation. We're using light, um, and this has like a like a range of benefits that could really drastically increase the energy efficiency of the processors. It could also make things run faster, and it's especially good if we're doing things like matrix multiply operations that are you know really quite fixed, and um, we can just repeat the same operation lots and lots of times. And in fact, this is what we do for deep learning, which just means that perhaps. This is like a really, really good uh, paradigm that people might want to switch into into the future if we want to get really, really big gains. But so does that mean that essentially Moore's law is possibly going to take off again? Yeah, I guess there are some like, differences here. Uh, because what exactly do we mean by Moore's law? Um, I think Moore's law, um, people often say, like frame in terms of like transistors. Um, I think the original paper frames it in terms of this term called complexity, uh, which could refer to um, components on the microprocessors that aren't necessarily transistors. Um, I'd say, from my understanding, this is not really my field, but uh, things like obstacle transistors have really quite struggled. Um, so maybe like the way in which we're doing the computations could be quite different. Maybe we're thinking more like a level of um, different kinds of circuits. So I think they might be called like um, multiply accumulants. Um, we're just using different kinds of obstacle components. Um, like Mach Zender interferometers. Uh, I won't get into that, but then essentially we're allowing, uh, we're using different kinds of components that aren't necessarily uh, transistors. And so maybe there would be just something different. I'm not sure what exactly the right analog is for Moore's law in that scenario. I do think that if you're looking at like a more general thing, we're not just saying like transistors, we could still see, and I do expect to see something like an improvement in scaling uh, over time. And in fact, I think probably quite a lot of um, developments historically in a whole bunch of different technologies has been just due to us, like, you know, cranking, like um, using more resources, slowly pushing the frontiers and seeing how far we can push things until we're able to achieve something that we want to get to. And in this case, it could be um, building really, really powerful artificial intelligence that will be able to you know, automate a lot of jobs. I don't know. Uh, and essentially, the question then is, like, how much will we need? Um, to get to these levels, yeah. I wonder whether it's sort of six or eight months out from the deadline and everyone's suddenly like, oh, quick, we better work on this so that we we actually hit the deadline and keep Moore's Law going. Or I've certainly heard uh, stories of how um, Moore's Law is a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and uh, I'd say, I suspect that there is such, such a dynamic in place. Um, there are pretty strong, like, um, um, as far as I'm aware, there are these like reports by the um, IRDS um, that they publish every year, just saying like what's what's the current state? How can we try to continue like making progress? And uh, just because it's like such a big part of like the um, the consciousness like of uh, people who are working in this area, um, I think it makes quite a bit of sense that there would be such a dynamic where people are just trying to reinforce like the existing trend. Um, I guess there's a bit more to say to this actually, um, which is kind of. Um, that's why would people want to continue to you know, scale in this particular way. Why would you want to follow that? Why would you want to make that happen? I'm going to draw like a little bit from um, a paper by um, Sarah Hooker. I think it's called the Hardware Lottery. And essentially, this points out that um, improvements, um, well, imagine that you are a researcher. And you're trying to come up with the next best hardware. And uh, you want to um, you know, earn a profit, perhaps. So what are you going to do? Well, one option is to try and come up with something totally novel. You want to be like the next uh, genius. You want to come up with like a totally new design and just beat everybody else. 
Well, unfortunately, it's quite hard to do this. Um, uh, you, first of all, you need to be able to come up with the idea in the first place. But even if you come up with the idea, it's not necessarily easy for you to be able to implement it. You're trying to beat a, a system where there's, um, or like a supply chain where people have been uh, optimizing, which people have been optimizing for quite a long time. Um, there are these, there's lots and lots of money being poured into improving certain kinds of micro, microprocessors with certain architectures. And trying to switch out of that is actually quite difficult. So in fact, there's like a strong incentive for you to say, actually, why don't we just continue using this particular recipe that we know already works? And we can just, you know, continue transistor scaling, meaning we make all the components smaller. We have perhaps like come up with um, new techniques for um, doing lithography at smaller scales. And, um, you know, if it's like a tried and tested recipe and we know it's probably going to continue for some time, why don't we continue doing it? And I'd say that's what's um, happening or that's probably a good dynamic that's uh, helped sustain Moore's law historically and why we haven't like switched as quickly to some of these alternative paradigms that I mentioned with optical and reversible computing. With quantum computing, is that going to take over uh, traditional computing? Is it going to replace it in a way that Moore's law is just a thing of the past? Or a quantum computer is always going to be slightly outside of the norm? Uh, Quantum computing thus far has been um, not had that much of an influence. And it seems difficult because of maybe three bottlenecks. One is just that um, it seems hard to come up with the right algorithms that we can apply to the right situations. And we need to find these right situations in the first place. And it's not necessarily easy. It seems like thus far that um, these tend to work in uh, certain specific domains like cryptography. Like a second difficulty is that um, even if you can identify what the domain is, it's not necessarily easy to come up with the right algorithm that allows you to get like the final products that you have. I think, for example, in um, Shor's algorithm, you have like this process of like cancellation of a lot of different things that um, is that gives you like the right results uh, at the end. And uh, the third aspect to this is probably just that um, you need to be able to build the hardware and make sure that the hardware is reliable. You don't have um, problems where um, like some perturbations or noise cause like the states to um, essentially get messed up and you're not able to do like the uh, quantum computations that you want to do. So my understanding is just it's quite difficult for us at present. So can you tell me a bit more about the, the sort of processing side of things and how, how that's looking? We want to understand uh, what the bottlenecks are to... Um, Using to getting really, really powerful processors and being able to use these for um, very expen- computationally expensive tasks. So for example, um, AI training runs, um, in order to train a deep neural network, uh, it typically costs like, a, you need like many, many GPUs for like the top um, AI systems of today. I think GPT-4, for example, probably costs on the order of 10 to the power of 25 uh, floating point operations over the entire course of training, which is really, really high, I guess. Uh, my computer certainly doesn't use, uh, or I haven't used that much. <laughs> I, don't, uh, I think I haven't. How are we going to be able to continue to push um, further if um, the demands for computation are just so high? How far can we continue to push things within the current paradigm? And these are important questions, I think, for um, from two dimensions. One dimension is that uh, if the energy costs associated with computation are increasing so much that they could in, you know, increasingly have like a cause problem, say with uh, environmental problems or with, in fact, like melting the GPUs that you're trying to use, that would be quite um, a problematic situation, I think. So we're worried about power density. We're worried about um, even if you could have really good cooling systems, what's going to be just like an unsustainable amount of um, computation um, that you would uh, try to do, but would just cause like too much harm. And the other aspect is that Let's say we want to continue improving. What does this uh, upper bound to uh, hardware efficiency tell us about how quick progress is going to be in the future? Well, let's say we want to determine how many um, floating point operations we can perform for like a, the largest training AI training run uh, using like existing processors of today. Um, the reason why we might care about this is that um, AI training runs depend or AI performance depends on these like scaling laws. So it's kind of if you're if you know some statistical physics, then um, you often have heard of things like um, scalings and and like phase transitions. There's like a similar thing that's inspired uh, by these kinds of like um, uh, relationships in statistical physics that people have found with deep neural networks. Essentially, when you increase um, things like the total amount of training data or the size of the model or like the total amount of training computation for these models, we find that the performance using some metric, which is typically like on some benchmark, like the loss or like the accuracy for classification, it, tends to, it kind of scales quite smoothly. And we can therefore use this to try to make some kind of forecast into the future of um, uh, how powerful AI systems are going to be. 
based on the forecast of how much data we will have and how much computation we'll have. If we then say, well, I might expect that there's going to be like a really, really large amount of computation, say like 10 to the power of 40 floating point operations. Let's just say that we believe this for the sake of argument. Is it going to be feasible for us to do this? Um, turns out it's uh, going to be quite difficult uh, given existing um, microprocessors. Um, so a project that um, some uh, me and my colleagues have been working on recently, uh, we roughly estimate that we're probably going to hit some bounds on the order of uh, performing 10 to the power of 16 floating point operations per joule of energy dissipated, which is about like three orders of magnitude, uh, I'd say three or four orders of magnitude higher uh, than existing uh, microprocessors. And this just means that, well, if we're going at uh, current rates of progress, I believe we're doubling on the order of like two to three years for energy efficiency, like floating point operations per joule. Uh, we're going to hit these limits like pretty quickly. Um, or before we hit these limits, progress is going to have to slow. And if this is the case, it just means that uh, if we want to do this like 10 to the power of 40 uh, flop training run, uh, we're going to, uh, if you look at the total amount of joules of energy that are released, um, really it just means that we're probably going to uh, emit on the order of like the same amount of energy that is emitted from the earth every single year, which I believe is on the order of 10 to the power of 24 joules. Um, and <laughs> that's about four orders of magnitude higher than uh, the amount of uh, energy that's released through like fossil fuels every year and say like in 2021. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so this just means, well, there are some, well, restrictions on what we can do from these energy efficiency limits. But of course you might ask, well, maybe we don't even need to get to these like 10 to the power of 40, like uh, flop training runs. These are, that's just a really, really large number. And in fact, I tend to agree. Uh, the reason why you might believe that 10 to the power of 40 might be relevant in the first place is that you might think, well, let me just try to guess how much computation you'll need to build like a really, really powerful AI system by looking at evolutionary history. If you look at evolutionary history and you count like all of the floating point operations and quotation marks, uh, they were like done in the neurons of organisms throughout this period. Um, we find that it just it takes like a really, really large amount. It's on the order of like 10 to the 40 something uh, floating point operations. And so this just suggests that um, if it is the case that we should be anchoring our estimates of the compute requirements from evolution, um, that we're going to have some problems with heating if we're using existing microprocessors. And perhaps this could mean that there's going to be like a, in the future, a fairly strong incentive to switch towards alternative paradigms, which are orders of magnitude more efficient. And on the economic side? I'm first going to like try to explain this in the context of uh, my previous economic paper, which is quite famous. It's called um, Our Ideas Getting Harder to Find. The idea here is that as you make more and more progress um, in like uh, doing some kind of R&D in some domain, um, because most of like the uh, initial earlier ideas are getting fished out, uh, you, you're picking all the lowest hanging fruit, um, further progress becomes harder and harder. You have to go and like, climb higher in the tree, I suppose, uh, to get like the fruit. So how large is this effect is the question. Does this mean that like uh, researchers are becoming less and less productive, are able to come up with fewer ideas and make less progress over time? Um, in fact, they find uh, the paper finds that um, this is the case uh, for quite a wide range of uh, fields. It's true across the aggregate economy uh, in some like frontier economies that they look at. It's also true within individual sectors, um, including um, I think semiconductor R and D. Uh, they also look at things like Moore's law in their paper. And why is this relevant? Well, it tells us that even without thinking about the energy efficiency limits, we get these like kinds of like, diminishing returns to, uh, as we get we do more and more research, it becomes harder to make further progress. Now, when we bring in the energy efficiency limits, it becomes much, much, much harder. As we get really, really close, the ideas are just going to dry up like much quicker if we're assuming that we're continuing within the same paradigm. And this means that we're going to have to massively increase the amounts of research inputs in order to be able to make further progress at say the same rate. It becomes, Moore's law, in a sense, becomes much less sustainable and it becomes harder to um, do that unless we're able to have a lot more researchers that are able to come up with new ideas. And typically, I think historically, um, some of the best economic theories that we have tell us that um, a big reason for this is like an increase in population or the increase in number of scientists which have been able to like compensate uh, for these difficulties. Although I will say that this is a little disputed. Um, yeah. So that's the second way uh, in which uh, we have um, 
some kind of an influence here. And the way we could, uh, one way we could try to uh, get around these bottlenecks is to bring artificial intelligence into the picture. Although human populations, well, I'm not sure how um, much we're going to be able to um, increase like human population at the same rate as say like in uh, the 1960s, uh, especially when say like fertility rates in um, some of the uh, frontier economies right now are, are say in Spain, I think it's down to like 1.4 and South Korea, it's around 1.4 as well. Um, it just means that um, we're it's going to be hard to get enough humans to um, have like these ideas to do research and to continue pushing things at the same rate. But with artificial intelligence in the picture, maybe AI can help us um, do like research and come up with new ideas or to augment the productivity of these researchers such that we can sustain, um, uh, meet this like in increase uh, for some time and push things a little bit further until we get to the limits. And then maybe then we will still have to switch to alternative paradigms. Yeah. Okay. Can artificial intelligence come up with ideas? I tend to think that it can. Like, I don't, um, I would say like, it's not entirely clear. Like uh, there are, there's certainly some uncertainty. Uh, and I think we should be thinking about this using some kind of like a probability distribution. Like we have some guesses and perhaps like in the, using some kind of um, Bayesian statistics approach. Um, we have some uh, initial guess, like a prior distribution. And then based on like our evidence uh, that we might have, like we might see that you know, GPT-4 was actually surprisingly good at some tasks that I didn't expect it to be good at. And then I might update my beliefs towards the direction of thinking that actually it could be the case that it's uh, pretty intelligent. Like it can, it has, it's able to do some kinds of common sense reasoning. Um, for example, I think um, uh, Jan Lecun, uh, like um, one of the famous like uh, founders of like deep learning uh, made this claim um, that uh, if you ask GPT-4 that, or if you ask like a really, really powerful language model that is something like GPT-4, if you put like, a book on the table and you push the table, will the book move along with the table? Um, uh, he predicted that uh, GPT-4 wouldn't be able to guess that the book might move along with the table. Uh, but I think this is not true. Actually, if you just ask GPT-4, uh, it actually some has like this kind of like, um, you know, some kind of a picture. I don't know if it's like an actual picture, but it's able to answer this kind of question with some degree of accuracy. So I think these kinds of things, like if we actually give it a test and we see that it's able to do, um, solve these kinds of problems, I think it will be able to do similar kinds of things. Um, and in fact, I think I would guess personally that if you're able to scale to really, really large scales of massive networks, like on a 10 to the 50 parameters, which is way larger than anything we have today uh, by many orders of magnitude, um, I think we could do that. The question is, well, in practice, we'll be able to do it. And I would guess that there are probably more efficient ways of um, training artificial intelligence than what we are currently doing today. Uh, and you know, I think in practice, if you think uh, from like an algorithmic perspective, um, even really, really, um, I guess, like not particularly intelligent algorithms are able to perform really complicated tasks just by using a large amount of computation to compensate for it. So I think there's probably something similar here, but I, of course, I can't be certain. Yeah. Who would you like to know about all these issues that are forthcoming? I guess I'd be most interested in like... Um, people who are uh, maybe were in like a similar position to me, I guess. Uh, so I only recently uh, got into um, AI forecasting and thinking about the future of AI. Uh, I actually finished my undergrad at um, University of St. Andrews um, back in 2021. Um, and I was just wondering, what am, oh my God, what am I going to do with my life? But I also wanted to really just like figure out what um, things I could do that were impactful and were like big questions to me. Uh, I think could have like an influence on like policy, like it affects like um, the rates of um, progress in from like an economic perspective. And um, it has um, influences for um, people who want to decide like how to govern AI such that if the progress is too fast, like there's going to be problems. So we want to make sure that we can adapt to these changes. Like these are questions that help inform us about that. And I really feel like um, that, you know, there are some ways in which we can try to use like um, things like the skill sets of physicists and solve really, really important problems. I mean, I think it's a bit presumptuous of me to say like I'm doing like solving uh, important problems. Like I, I try to do so. But I don't know if I actually am. But I think more people should be thinking along the lines that they actually can do it. Um, I think a lot of my friends at uh, uni and myself included, I would say, actually, with um, that we were initially thinking that well, what can we even do? It seems very hard. The only thing we can do is um, to maybe think a little bit about, about climate change. But, um, and that's important. Uh, but uh, are there other things that we can do? There's so many problems out there that uh, could benefit so much from people with um, who are mathematically minded or uh, have some kinds of intuitions from physics. There are so many problems out there. Why don't we try to um, do this more?
I guess this would be the um, like people who are interested in trying to figure out how to impact the world in a positive way and to really use um, maybe physics or maybe to switch to another thing. To I'd like to talk to people who are, uh, or to really communicate with people who are um, interested in this kind of thing. Lewis Barson has a message for you, the listeners. I mean, I think, you know, if they're physicists listening uh, and they don't know about semiconductor industry, please do, you know, read up on it. I think it's a, a fantastic example of where physics is right at the heart of, uh, you know, economic and societal transformation. Uh, and it's a fantastic story, um, even if it isn't the area you want to go and work in, uh, although, of course, it's a great area to work as well. Uh, so please, please do uh, read up on it if you haven't uh, already uh, heard the story. And uh, if you do already know about it, um, then uh, please do participate in uh, the, the IOP's uh, impact projects because uh, we really want your uh, your voices and your views to be, be reflected in uh, w- yeah, the areas where the IOP is trying to make a difference on the, on the national stage. If you'd like to know more about Moore's Law, you can find an article on physicsworld.com by James McKenzie. And we'll be back next month when we'll be looking into the International Year of Basic Sciences for Sustainable Development. And thank you very much for listening. Physics World.